Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, it's good to see you this morning. This is December 3rd. It's our lesson 13 for the book of Ecclesiastes. So glad to, glad to have you with us today. Now let's pray and we'll get started in chapter 10. Our Father, we, now we thank you again for your grace and kindness to us that you've gathered us together. We thank you so much for your word, your written word that you have preserved and kept for us for this day, that it's a living word, and, and we pray now that your spirit would enliven our hearts to your word that we may see uh, what we need to see today about ourselves, about you, about your great plan and authority and your love for us. Thank you for each person that's in the room today. Thank you for our brother Jeff teaching next door. And, we pray that, uh, I pray that you would uh, bless these today, meet their needs, uh, whatever they may be, by your word. We love you and we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray he'd be precious to us uh, through our study. We pray in his name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, I don't know where your Bible shows up, but mine at, is at the end of this book. Not when I'm going to cover the end of this book today, but I love to see... I love to finish things, and so I'm glad to see that we're getting close to, to finishing um, our study of Ecclesiastes. We have this week and, and two more weeks, and I've, uh, I've read ahead a little bit, and so I, I can see something that will help us to divide up our, our study. Today we're going to um, kind of finish up uh, chapter 10 and probably do verses 1 through 6 in uh, chapter 11. Uh, cha uh, verses 7 and 8 in chapter 11, as far as I can understand, is kind of serves as a conclusion, but it also serves as an uh, introduction, and kind of a transition to the next section of the book, which you can see in verse 9 of chapter 11 is where Solomon begins to address particularly a, a young man or, or youth. And that goes through uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 8. So, the Lord willing, that'll be our topic, that'll be our text for next week, uh, the middle of chapter 11 through uh, verse 8 of chapter 12. And then the final week will be the, will be the grand conclusion there, verses 9 through uh, 14. And there's a lot there, so it'll take us uh, all, all of our time to cover those what uh, six verses. So today, uh, I'm going to pick up at chapter 10, and uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on this, but just to look at a, at a couple of things. Uh, I've got it entitled, uh, The Words of Fools. So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through uh, 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. So obviously we're seeing great contrast here um, between the words of the wise and words of the fool. Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. 
A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him uh, what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know uh, the way to the city. So here Solomon is giving us another lesson on, on words, and we're going to see that again uh, as we close out chapter 10, kind of a summary of chapter 10. But the words of uh, the words of the wise, the words of the wise man result in the blessing of grace for himself and others, but a, but a fool self-destructs by his words. So um, there's a little bit of interest here about what this what this verse means about the words of the wise man win him favor, and you may see the um, um, the ESV note says the words of the wise are gracious, and what that means is that as he speaks words of wisdom, they bring grace to the people that he's speaking to. But also, it appears that it can also mean that as he speaks grace to others, grace redounds to him too. So he finds favor too. Um, the words of wise people are effective and fruitful because not only their content, but the spirit with which they, they speak. So we, we are to speak the truth in love. Um, and then verse uh, 13, the beginning, oh, well, well, the fool consumes himself. In fact, the lips of a fool consume himself. That's an interesting word picture, isn't it? Can you see that word picture in your mind? Doesn't make any sense, does it? But it does make sense. We know what he, what he means by that. The fool is always consuming himself. He's not concerned about others. He's only concerned about himself. So even his words are self-centered. But notice uh, my note there, a quote from uh, Derek Kidner, verse uh, 10, 13. Folly never stands still. It develops and deteriorates. The speech of the fool begins with folly but ends in wicked madness. It has devastating consequences on himself and others. Uh, and notice... Uh, Kidner, oh, that was Bartholomew Kidner points out, the consequences are both moral and mental. So look at verse 13. Uh, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. So it starts off just maybe simple foolishness, but at the end his talk uh, is evil madness. So there's evil, it's morally evil, and it's mentally deranging. It's, uh, um, it's mental madness. Which really, when you think about it, that's just the opposite of the um, of the words of a wise person. Words of, when we speak words of wisdom, our words are pure and they are uh, they're sane. They you know they're mentally mentally sane. Okay, I'm kind of moving through this. Uh, by the way, I think you know even though Solomon is talking about a group of people that, are, that he calls fools. Uh, wow, all of us can speak foolish words, can't we? So these concerns and these warnings are good for all of us today as we, as we think about that. Verse uh, 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows uh, what is to be. He thinks he does. He thinks he knows all about it. And who can tell him what will, what will be after him? So uh, he won't stop talking. Uh, he doesn't care what the consequences are. He keeps talking and nobody can tell him anything. And then verse 15, he doesn't even understand or know how to do basic tasks. His life and toil are needlessly difficult. 
because of his stupidity and won the uh, one commentator said he'd get lost on an, on an escalator. <laughs> kind of a good, that's clear. Isn't it? So verse uh, 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. I don't know if that's a technical statement, the way to the city, he just kind of, he doesn't even understand, you know, common, how to even get from out of town to the city, maybe to go to work or something like that. Um, so there's the words and the activity of a Fool, any comments or observations about those those verses? Mark? Scott Patrick wrote several books. Uh, Say that again, Mark. Scott Peck oh, yeah. is most known for writing uh, uh, The Road Less Travel, mm -hmm. but he wrote Children of the Lie, and he spoke of how in his practice as a psychiatrist that many people that he dealt with uh, began their their trail down to mental issues, mental uh, incapacity by believing a lie, a foundational lie about themselves or about something foundational. And he wrote one book about demonic possession that he had dealt with in only two cases, that these people had started, their road started by accepting a lie. And so this verse reminded me of, of that, that book and what he said. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read that the people of the lie too. That's a I don't know much about Scott Beck's spiritual uh, life, but he had some really good insights there. And also in that book he talked about how uh, groups can become evil in a new way that individuals uh, yeah. good. Okay, thank you. All right, any other comments or thoughts about the words and behavior of a foolish person? Okay. I just kind of want to read these last uh, five verses to you. I don't know exactly why they're here. I didn't put a lot of study into them, and the commentaries didn't seem to know either. But um, I called it the blessings on the land uh, with wise and mature leaders and the, the sadness of a land who doesn't have wise and mature leaders. I'll, I'll read this, and then we'll just kind of move on. Uh, verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the, of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Uh, though sloth, I mean, through, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. I think talking about maybe the nation or the, the, the government entity when rulers don't don't lead right, and it's like the, the roof leaking and the house uh, the house falling apart. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Um, so you can see my uh, my comments there, and I quoted from some some folks. I think kind of the lesson there is don't put immature, lazy, spoiled young people in charge of important tasks. <laughs> you wouldn't think we would do that, but uh, I remember in our, in our homeowner association, uh, we had, this is before we got there, but we had one, uh, yeah, one man that caused all kinds of trouble in the homeowner association. We had a little neighborhood of 30 people. He didn't pay his dues and and somebody had the crazy idea, well, if we put him in charge and he has responsibility, surely it'll all get worked out. What a disaster. 
I think he threw away all the records, so we had to start over. But all, anyway, just he wasn't a young man; he was an older guy that that was immature, lazy, spoiled. Um, and then another point here I see is that uh, um, controlling the appetites is a key to good leadership. He just talks about eating there. You know, these these young guys get up and start drinking early in the morning, and but a good leader gets up and eats a meal just so he'll have strength, you know, to provide his leadership. I've seen the impact on the church. I went to a church in Delaware that um, they uh, brought on a, a young man. Uh, he hadn't even graduated from uh, either, had just graduated or from Liberty. And I don't know if it was because he was from Liberty, they assumed that he was capable as a leader, and they made him in charge of youth and music. Hmm. And it almost tore the church apart. Hmm. Um, they made decisions like, well, then we need to help him with his tuition. So he had a ridiculous salary for a small church, mm. and then um, and he took advantage of people, and and it, it was very disruptive. So yeah, and he was it, it, I I don't think it was in evil. He was just so immature, and yeah. Yeah, I was the youth director at 23, and I looking back, I thought. That was ridiculous. You know, why did the church do that? Uh, and we did things that I would, that if, if Cody or somebody did the things we did in the youth program, you know, we'd be writing a pink slip probably pretty quickly. But, but you're right. Youth, I think it's good to give youth responsibility, but if you don't give them the whole boatload, you, you know, dole it out a little at a time so they can show themselves and grow. Well, you don't pay them for it. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay. All right. Well, I want to kind of draw a, a little bit of a conclusion. Oh, by the way, uh, that verse 30 is interesting. Um, even if the government is corrupt, Solomon says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature will tell the matter. So little birds are everywhere, so watch out for what you say in your bedroom. <coughs> All right, uh, if you remember last year, if you look, look back to chapter 10, verse 1, we talked about this concept, this very important truth. 10.1, uh, dead flies make the perfume, the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And just kind of remind you, we talked about that a little bit. How does, what are we talking about? Two, two ways that can happen. One. A wise man or a woman can can provide wisdom that brings um, order and hope and goodness to a, to a situation, but another person can tear it down just in a moment. But the other way that we looked at it, and I think is really important to us, is that also in ourselves, we may speak wisdom, but we can tear down our own wisdom in just a brief moment, and maybe even tear down the the benefits of wisdom in one action. And uh, we had lots of good discussion about that. The one I remember particularly is Steve Sackett. Steve Sackett. Great, great observation about Moses. Boy, had a great 
and he was on his way to the promised land and faithful leader and then uh, one act what he spoke to the rock rather he, he hit the rock rather than spoke to it and was ex in, in that Africa and he was excluded from the promised land there may have been more going on there but on the surface it looks like just one one act of uh, anger or frustration or unbelief whatever it was and wait, can't you see Moses after he did that what the, what have I done here maybe I don't know what he did but anyway so I want to just kind of give you this I was going to do this anyway last week but didn't get to it just kind of a conclusion uh, two ways in our own lives that a little folly can neutralize or nullify wisdom in our lives and in our ministry to others maybe in our family or our church or wherever it may be and the first one I would just remind you of is how our words can do that and uh, let's go to James uh, James chapter 3 and I just want to read read this section to you um, as somebody said James is James is Solomon's twin brother in the New Testament. That may be our friend Gibson. I don't know who said that, but um, I'm just going to I'm going to read these verses down through verse 12, and just listen, hear the Book of Ecclesiastes in these verses, particularly our words and what we just uh, looked at. So I'll start with verse uh, two. This is James chapter three, verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. And why well, just sounds exactly like what we've been reading in Ecclesiastes. One little word can, can undo a great deal of good. So now uh, verse 5b. Uh, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, uh, making the whole perfume uh, stink, uh, setting on fire the, the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grape produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And I won't read anymore except just look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding? Then he goes into a, into a lesson on, on, uh, on good and bad uh, wisdom. But So here's the power of our words. and uh, We won't ask for testimonies, but well, I could give you some where one 
literally one word from me, uh, maybe to Dixie because of something good. I don't even know where to go with this, but uh, you can ask her if I've done that. But um, or just one little word can unravel a whole a good day or a good relationship or something like that. And don't can you? Those words almost have a, have a a, a a visual context as they leave your mouth, and you just wish you had it back before it. What was it like? The guy that that. Uh, uh, he made it like he, he described it like going to the into a windy area and shaking the feathers out of a pillow. There's no way to go, you know, to go get them back. But we can try to make that right. But notice what he says here. He says it's impossible to control the tongue. So what's the point of this lesson if you can't do it? Well, what he says is the the point is that the tongue is not. Uh, the control of the tongue does not begin with the function of speech. The control of the tongue begins where? In, in the heart. And that's, what, that's how he finishes there uh, about the spring and the, a good spring can't bring forth bad water. Or, so it reminds me of, uh, reminds us of Matthew 12 where Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart um, it's kind of a colloquial phrase, but I think it makes sense. The, the issue of the heart is the heart of the issue. Always come back to the heart. And that brings me to the next uh, point, point number two. We're talking about how, how uh, we can unravel wisdom. And another point is, as you look back at chapter back in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 10 about the chapter 10 verse 10 if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge he must use more strength but wisdom uh, helps one to succeed so an, another way I think that we can unravel wisdom is uh, having a blunt spiritual edge and maybe you remember last week we talked about that can mean different things, like keeping your edge sharp and some kind of professional expertise, something like that. But we read a couple of fellows that reminded us that really the, the spiritual edge that we need is uh, the reality, walking in the reality of who we are as God's people, rejoicing in Christ, looking at the world through the lens of the gospel. Um, I, I just love a, a biblical counselor that I've gotten to know. I don't know him, but I've read his books. A guy named Rick Thomas. And I think I may have showed you all this before. He says, you only have four relationships in life. You have a theological relationship with God, psychological relationship with yourself, uh, sociological relationship with other people, and the last one he called ecological, uh, meaning everything else, you know, what's around you. And he made this point that um, that we have to keep these relationships in the right order. That we, uh, the most important relationship is our relationship with God because we, as we see Him clearly through the gospel, and that's the only way we should look at, at God is through the gospel. As we see Him clearly through the gospel, then we can begin to understand ourselves. And then we can begin to, as we understand ourselves, we can understand those around us. And then if we've got a problem at work or something, we can work on it that way. 
But what we often do is we, uh, we say, well, I got a problem that works, that's where I'm going to work on it. But he said, no, start, you know, be sure you're relating rightly to God with the gospel, then you'll see clearly. So I just think it's so important that to keep our spiritual edge sharp, sharp, that we drink from the gospel every day, that our heart is refreshed in the grace of God. Um, Psalm 23, he restores my soul. When we, look, when we look at the world through the lens of the gospel, we see things clearly. When we look at the world through some other lens, well, no wonder it gets distorted. And no wonder we, uh, we can uh, neutralize any wisdom that we would have had. So, drink from the gospel every, every day and uh, find your hope there. Okay, let's go now to uh, chapter 11. And we'll probably just get through the first uh, six verses, but that will be uh, that'll be plenty. So I'll read uh, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, probably verses that you've thought about or heard before. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So these two verses work together. They're kind of a bit of a Hebrew parallelism, probably saying the same thing, maybe in a little bit different way. There are several interpretations. The two, the two primary ones that I read about uh, how to apply these two verses. One would be to, uh, to businesses, to, to business, to carrying on enterprise. Uh, kind of don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of thing. Um, spread your investments out and, and those kinds of things. Um, interestingly, in that first part, cast your bread upon the waters, a lot of uh, commentators think of that as, uh, as uh, doing maritime um, transactions, putting things on boats and sending them out to be sold in foreign countries and saying, be patient, because it may take a long time for your profit to come back. You know, uh, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after, after many days. Um, so the, the, uh, the parallelism there, cast your bread on the waters, is paralleled in verse 2, give a portion uh, to seven or even to eight. So it seems to me there's a, there's a parallel working here. The, the commentators I read think clearly that verse 2 has to do with uh, benevolence or giving. And very interesting, I, I didn't write it down clearly, but that interesting statement there, give a portion to seven or even to eight. I forgot who, you know, here's my guy, uh, Kaiser. I think that's who, who it was. Um, he, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he pointed out, I think in Amos, where Amos says two and three or something like that, the point he's making is, is you know, seven is the number of completion, and so maybe what Solomon is saying, give to seven, no, but add one to it, give to seven and even to more, kind of like, uh, remember Peter said, uh, do I have to forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. He wasn't saying 490 times. He was saying, no, endlessly. 
So it seems that maybe the writer here is saying, be generous to as many people as you can, and then, uh, and then some. And the, what we're going to see here in a few minutes as we work through these six verses is that the fear of failure and the and the uh, the lack of knowing the future can um, discourage us from taking action. And he's been telling us that all along. You can't control the future, and you don't even know the future. So get over it. It's going to kind of what he's going to say. Say here, we'll see that more clearly in a few minutes. Um, so let's look. Let's let the Lord Jesus give us some insight on this in Roman. Excuse me, Luke, Luke twelve. This is the parable Jesus told in Luke, uh, Luke twelve, when the when the man came and said, "Force my brother to divide the inheritance with me," and in uh, Luke 12, verse uh, 15. And he said to them, so as we read this parable and, and hear the wisdom of our Lord, let's think about this idea of, of, uh, of giving. Verse 15, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I mean, Solomon would say, No, 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 you're going all you're doing this all wrong, but notice what Jesus says. Um, verse eighteen. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? For Solomon said the same thing. Quit trying to store up all this stuff because you're going to die, and then who's going to be in charge of it? Now verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So my question for you today is what does it mean to be rich toward God? Please. Um, I guess I think giving to others. Okay. And why do you say that? <laughs> I think that's a great answer. <laughs> Because of, of that verse too, you know, being rich toward God is, is giving, giving devotion to others. Okay. That gives God joy. Okay. In there, there's an interesting uh, proverb I wrote it down, Proverbs 19:17. When we give to the poor, we're lending to the Lord. Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? And the, the implication, in fact, the rest of the verse says something like, he'll pay you back. Hmm. It's not a bad savings plan, is it? <laughs> yeah, I have a yeah. question kind of related. Back on the second half of uh, verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, where you will find it after, find it after many days. At first glance, that makes me think that you need to throw your 
right upon the waters are because you'll get it back. That's why you should. And if you're thinking, I don't know how to quite ask that, that you should do that because you're going to get you're going to get it back. Okay. Which is kind of not the direction the rest of it is, right? Well, I don't think it necessarily. To me, the point there is it may take a long time, so don't you know don't be impatient about it. But I don't think it says you may not get it back the way you thought you would, but you will get something back. No, the purpose for casting on the water is so that you would get it back. Okay. But okay. All right. But it seems like to me. That's good. So the casting is important to the process. Right, but your motivation would be different if you were casting on it because. Um, so, so that because you'll get it back. I don't know how to quite ask. Rather than just rather than just giving to give, you're giving so that you get something, and you're saying that's the impression you're getting from what that verse is saying. Uh, yes, you said it a lot better than yeah. Okay. Yeah. So motive, you see motive here, perhaps. Yes. Okay. It may be talking about investment, kind of uh, like international trade, where you would ship something out and then come bring it back. So but, but the, you, you make an investment, you send some, some goods overseas with the hope of return of it coming back. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what the note yeah. said, that it could be in regards to investment. Right. But, that, then, but we were applying it to benevolence, and it doesn't seem like it lends itself to benevolence. Except the Lord will. Yeah, maybe what Solomon's saying here, there's more going on here than what you know. You do, you do what you're, that's obvious, and you do what you're supposed to do and let God's providence uh, determine what's going to happen. Okay. Dan, huh? hey, is it, would it be a, a good way to phrase it the way Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount about storing up treasure in heaven where it will stay rather than on earth where it will disappear and yeah. eventually? I think so. Yeah, so anyway, uh, yeah, whatever Jesus means by that, being rich toward God, giving to others, uh, investing in His kingdom, and things like that. So just a just a couple of more. Things. Oh, interestingly, verse back in that parable, um, Jesus says, uh, "For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions." <clears throat> Boy, that is the philosophy of our culture, isn't it? One's life does consist in the abundance of your possessions, but he's saying that it that it doesn't. But well, we're going to see this develop, I think. Just I just gave you a couple of verses there. Second uh, Corinthians nine six. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And verse uh, Proverbs eleven: One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. So, um, then verse 3 gives two examples, of, or two more examples really, of unforeseen, uncontrollable events, rain clouds and falling trees. Those are two things you can't do anything about. You can't, we can't stop the rain. It's going to come. And it could bring blessing or it could bring a flood. We don't know. And you can't stop a big tree from falling. 
Have you ever tried to pump these, hadn't tried to do that? Mm -hmm. uh, I've cut down a couple of trees and wished I could have controlled where they fell, but, um, but a tree could fall on your house or it could be firewood for you. You don't know. These are just, he's just pointing out two, two clear things that, um, uh, that we can't control in verse, in verse 3. Now, verse 4, he gets uh, moving toward the, the gist of what he's trying to say. So it's kind of, you could say, therefore, um, looking at all the uncertainties of life and the uncontrollableness of life, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. You can see my note there. Attempts to predict the future to gain optimal conditions for profit-making lead to inactivity. Life should be embraced for what it is, good and bad, and people should give up the pursuit of profit from their toil. Living life fully uh, is its own reward. Uh, this fellow Probon, he said, don't try to beat the system because you're not going to be able to. By, by, you know, by knowing the system, don't try to, uh, don't try to, uh, don't try to beat it. Uh, look back at 8, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the works, all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He can't know. So verse 4, 11, 4 says, if you're trying to figure all this out, and that's a, and that's a requirement for you to take action, you'll never do anything. That's his point. His point there. Um, Solomon would say that's a waste of time. In fact, you'll waste your whole life if your goal is to figure out the future for the most optimal time to act. You will you will never find that all come into all come into line. And I'm going to quote Kaiser again, but I think this is so good. He says, uh, "The duty is ours; the outcome is God's." The duty is ours, the outcome is God's. And we're going to see this in the last two verses of the book, how important duty is. Solomon is saying, do your duty. Do what you are, what you need to do. Don't try to figure out just exactly the, you know, the, the proper conditions for doing it. Just do it, whether it's parenting or working or working in the church, whatever it is, uh, ministering to your neighbors. Uh, just do it. And God will work the outcome. Okay, uh, verse uh, 5. <clears throat> As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So this is just an example. He's saying uh, you don't know what all God is doing. And here's an example. You don't understand how God brings life to a baby in the womb. And uh, Gibson says, even with 3D ultrasound, we can only observe what God is doing. As David said in Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and Gibson says, even with a 3D ultrasound, we can observe it. We don't know how one cell becomes a finger, another cell becomes a pancreas. We don't understand that. There's things that God does that we can't do. I don't think I'll take time to read Job 
if you join me with the next semester, we're going to do Job <coughs> then. But uh, interestingly, you know, all these guys, all the Job's friends, they pontificate, you know, and say a bunch of foolishness. And then God speaks to Job in Job 38 and 39. At the beginning of chapter 40, God, I mean, Job answers and says, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I didn't know what all was going on, and I still don't. And then, then God speaks to him for two more chapters, you know, chapters you know, 40 and 41. Uh, but we'll look at that when we get there. So uh, Ecclesiastes is teaching us to surrender the demand or need to know everything. I cannot know, and so I don't have to know. Trying to know or pretending to know is foolishness. And isn't that, isn't that liberating? We don't have to know everything that's going on in order to fulfill our responsibilities before God. Now look at verse 6. Really interesting. Uh, well, 5 and 6. Notice this common phrase uh, in verse 5. You do not know. And then at the end of verse 5, you do not know. And then in verse 6, in the morning sow your seed and in the evening withhold not your hand for you do not know. His point is, you need to act because uh, you don't know. Just do your, if you're a farmer, sow your seed and reap the seed later. Uh, but you don't know. Um, you don't know what God is doing. So don't let your, well, here's a, a good quote. Do not give in either to the fear of failure or to the false promise of God-like success. You can't succeed like God does, so don't try to act. And there's, there's that quote again from Kaiser. The duty is ours. The results are God's. The thing that is worse than either success or failure in life is failing to live in the first place. Paralyzed by fear of failure, we, never, we will never try anything. And then uh, Gibson quotes E.E. Uh, e. Cummings. Y'all know E.E. E. Cummings? I didn't. I looked him up. He's a dead poet. Um, I'm not making fun of him. I, don't, I didn't read much about him. But he was famous for saying this. Being undead isn't being alive. That's pretty good, isn't it? And there is a risk of failure, isn't there? But I, as I was thinking about that, there's a risk of failure in what we, what we try to do, what we attempt. But in some ways, that is only risk from our perspective. I mean, it's only failure from our perspective. When you factor in the, the sovereignty of God, God takes even our failures and works in for what? He works all things together for, for good to conform us to the image of His Son. Well, just to finish up here, I thought you'd enjoy this. <clears throat> um, this is the book, uh, Decision Making and the Will of God, that uh, Mark Ritchie reviewed at the at the retreat, and I knew this book. It was, it was published in 1980, and I had a huge, huge life direction decision to make in 1982, and I found this book. And I was trying to decide where to do some extra, some additional schooling after seminary, and I was, uh, you know, waiting for, um, like Kevin DeYoung says, I was waiting for a dream, a vision, a fleece, an impression. An open door, a random Bible verse, casting lots, liver shivers, or riding in the sky. 
and because I didn't know what to do. And there wasn't a wrong or right, or there wasn't a moral issue, it was just a decision to make about which school to go to. And I remember reading this book. I don't really remember reading it, because it was a long book, but I remember that I did read it, and it really helped me to make that decision. So <clears throat> look at these four, uh, these four points. This is similar to Mark Ritchie's conclusions or summary. I don't, I don't think this is his because I found, found them in this uh, piece of paper in the front of this book, but they're exactly what he was saying, I think. So uh, what is biblical decision-making? The point is we've been talking about being paralyzed by the conditions, not knowing what to do. So point number one, uh, where God commands, we must obey. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. And where there is no command, God gives wisdom to choose. Okay. Another book that we heard at the retreat was uh, Nick Lamb. He, he, pre he, he uh, gave a review of this book, <clears throat> uh, 31 Days Toward Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, which is, he's probably given one to most of it. He's given away over 300 copies, I think. It's amazing. Um, but I wanted to read you something about what Jerry Bridges <coughs> says. Um, actually, I won't, let me read point number four. When we have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereign God to work all things uh, together for good. So I'm gonna read, uh, read a couple of pages to you here. And we'll, we'll close with this. Let's see if I can find that. Well, I can, let's see. The, the scriptures, the scriptures never indicate that God is frustrated to any degree by our failure to act as wisely as we should. In his own infinite wisdom, God's sovereign plan includes our failures and even our sins. So here, let me read that again. The scriptures never indicate that God is frustrated to any degree by our failure to act as wisely as we should. In his own infinite wisdom, God's sovereign plan includes our failures and even our sins. And then he says this about our great longing and eagerness that God would, that the Lord would lead us. Uh, this is a couple of pages, but I think you'll be blessed by what he says. Like most Christians, I've struggled over the right choice at some fork in the road, decision points that we encounter from time to time. I may have, I may have made some wrong decisions, I don't know, but God in his sovereignty has faithfully guided me in his path through right decisions and wrong ones. I'm where I am today, not because I've always made wise decisions or correctly discovered the will of God at a particular point along the way, but because God has faithfully led me and guided me along the path of his will for me. God's guidance is almost always step by step. He does not show us his plan for all of, for us all at once. Sometimes out of anxiousness to know the will of God comes a desire to peer over God's shoulder to see what his plan is. What we need to do is learn to trust him to guide us. Of course, this doesn't mean putting our minds in neutral and expecting God to guide us in some mysterious way apart from hard and prayerful thinking on our part. It does mean, as J.I. Packer has said, 
God made us thinking beings and he guides our minds as we think things out in his presence. Now stay with me for this last paragraph. I believe Dr. Packer has expressed it so well. God guides our minds as we think, but the important truth is that God does guide. He does not play games with us. He does not look down from heaven at our struggles to know his will and say, I hope you make the right decision. Rather, in his time and in his way, he will lead us along his path for us. Many years ago, Fanny Crosby penned these words, which are so appropriate to this topic of trusting God for guidance. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. So there we see the merging of God giving us opportunity and responsibility to make decisions that are not clearly marked out as right or wrong in the Bible, but he gives us this fork in the road and we're to make a choice. So let's do the best we can to make that choice and factor in the beautiful, compassionate sovereignty of God and know you can't, you're not going to mess this up. So go make a choice and do it and we'll see you next week.